Welcome to another semester of Class in the Bunker. Uh, our our uh, last class was uh, the first part of December, and here we are in uh, the last part of January, and uh, we're finally getting a chance to get started again after some uh, Facebook glitches on my part and uh, just taking a break for uh, the holidays. Um, but for those that might be a little bit uh, confused, we, we did this class from... Uh, probably April through to December without a break um, and it was always on uh, LDS class discussions with Kevin Hinckley. Uh, we had a problem with that uh, Facebook page a few weeks ago and I've had to move it all now to uh, LDS class in the bunker which is kind of more appropriate. LDS class in the bunker with, with Kevin Hinckley and if you're here you've made the journey and if and if you're finding this elsewhere, please like the page so that we can let you know that uh, we're doing the next one. Now, uh, for everybody else uh, that maybe this is new or you've kind of forgotten, um, one of the things that we try and do in this class is that uh, we're trying to take a look at the Old Testament through restoration eyes. And, and we have added knowledge and understanding. And part of that f restoration is... Uh, in our church, and part of that restoration has come as light and knowledge has come to people outside the church, other scholars. And, and we're trying to draw from all of that uh, to better understand uh, the scriptures that we're looking at. And the Old Testament is one where we need to draw on every tool possible uh, so that, um, so that uh, you get a chance to see where we're drawing it from. Um, Obviously, a lot of it is going to be, we're going to be grabbing things from our standard scriptures that give us light and knowledge and understanding about it. But uh, BYU professors and Maxwell Institute people and Interpreter and others have, have, have uh, demonstrated really clearly the depth of knowledge and inspiration and revelation that has come to non-members of the church who have studied deeply these things. So along with our standard works. Uh, I tend to draw on things like uh, Thomas Wayman's uh, New Testament uh, translation for Latter-day Saints, a BYU professor, who's done a wonderful job. His, his new uh, uh, translation of, of the New Testament is just beautifully done and much more clear. We let the King James Version filled a, filled a role for so many years. Um, but it has its limitations. It's sometimes much harder to understand, and so the clarity for someone like uh, Brother Wayman has been very, very helpful. Uh, when we're looking into the Old Testament, uh, he and other uh, LDS scholars uh, would suggest things like uh, the NRSV, uh, the New Oxford Annotated Bible that draws heavily on the ancient Greek um, and and we like that. And then also recently one that I've, I'm using a lot uh, this semester. Wonderful uh, Jewish scholar by the name of uh, Robert Alter who uh, was invited to BYU to lecture and speak. And, and he has come up with uh, uh, his, his translation. The first one is The Five Books of Moses. Uh, and they are they are beautifully well done. And so when we're looking at verses and we're trying to understand passages, let's draw on as much as we can. Joseph Smith said, we will find truth wherever we find it, from whatever source. 
uh, and whatever is um, praiseworthy, we will hold on to that. Well, we're going to try and do that. Okay, well that said, um, now, as we, as we get rolling here, um, I recently had a conversation, it seems like I have these conversations as, as a uh, licensed counselor uh, with people in my office about daily. Uh, this was a lady going through a particularly painful, traumatic uh, moment in her life and some very bad things that happened to her. And, and part of her question as, a, as an active Latter-day Saint was, what am I supposed to learn from this? Um, and and uh, if we translate what she was actually saying is, I'm going through trials. I go through trials because I'm supposed to be learning specific things about myself, and and that's the purpose of this trial. And I'm and I need to learn it, uh, either so it will stop, or so that it, I haven't gone through it in vain. Uh, now, where do we that that line of logic is not peculiar to Latter Day Saints. A, a, a most Christian sects want to co go down that road and and one of the reasons why it is that we do that is this age-old story of Abraham and Isaac it's a story that we actually know pretty well and I'm not going to take time to belabor all of it but basically there's a narrative there's a story that we tell uh, and we're pretty quick uh, this is one of those stories like in a gospel doctrine setting or an institute sometimes too quickly we will we want to talk about sacrifice so we reach into the Old Testament we grab the Abraham Isaac story we bring it out uh, we all have to have our trials so that we can be tested even as Abraham uh, so that we learn how to be obedient no matter what and then we put it back in the Bible and we go forward we used it as an example but if you look at the larger narrative to here, what it, the, the story we're telling is, it, it begins with Genesis 20, 22, 1. It happened after these things, uh, some treaties and things that Abraham was doing, that God tested Abraham. We say, well, what does it mean that God tested Abraham? Well, our story, the narrative that we explain and we tell sounds something like this. God made covenants with Abraham. We know that he was, the book of Abraham says he was one of the noble and great ones, that he was chosen before he was born, that we have the first Abraham one. He says, I found I needed to leave the land of my fathers because they were doing these idols, and I'm going to go from there, and I want to get the blessings of the, the fathers. Um, and that he does and he goes out and obtains the priesthood and because of that righteousness and that desire that God is going to call him Abraham which is the father of nations um, and so God covenants with him uh, he blesses him after all this time we have this miracle that has occurred uh, with, with Sarah and uh, he's finally going to get the miracle birthright son that he was looking for, even though he'd already had Ishmael, but he wasn't the birthright guy. Uh, so uh, God covenants with Abraham. He blesses him with this miracle son. And then 
God is then going to require Abraham to do the sacrifice of sacrifices. He's going to find the thing that he loves the most and require that of him. That that miracle son is going to be a test and he's going to have to sacrifice him. And of all the things that God could choose to really uh, test him the most, this would be it. After all the miracles and everything are, are going to come. Um, so because of that, uh, what we know, obviously, because this is where his uh, progeny is going to come from, that God never really planned on Isaac being sacrificed. The whole thing was really a test to see if, obey, if Abraham would be obedient in the face of the thing that he was required to do the most. And that Abraham passed. Uh, and as Hubie Brown once said, Abraham had to learn something about Abraham, and he passed that test. Um, then we extend it one more to us, where then we say, okay, now like Abraham, we also have to be tested, and our obedience has to be tested. So uh, as Joseph said to his uh, early uh, Quorum of the Twelve, God will test you. He will wrench your very heartstrings, and if you cannot bear it, you won't be worthy to enter the kingdom. So we understand that tests and trials come into our life to test our obedience uh, and that we have to be ready for those, and we pray that we won't just go through a trial, but that we also won't fail the test uh, while we're going through the trial. Now, it's this very set of ideas, to be honest with you, that really has kind of run a number of people cold. Uh, They look at this idea that we can fail the trial if we're not obedient. So we're being tried and tested and in pain and traumatized all at the same time. And again, a number of people have said, this is not, doesn't sound like a loving God to me. I think that's kind of dumb. And off they go. You say, no, it's about obedience. We've got to be obedient. Well, that's why it is that we tend at the end of the day to say God sends trials of his own volition into our life to test us and approve us. And that's why we came in the first place to uh, mortality. Now, I believe that what's happened over time, though, is that I think we have misunderstood what actually happened there. And because of that, by extension, I think uh, it's going to affect how we see ourselves and our own ups and downs and and the struggles we have in our life if we misunderstand this point. Um, And so... Here, let's go back on this because I've been, I, I've had the, I've had the uh, luxury of looking at this for the last few weeks and and raising some questions, and I have to tell you, brothers and sisters, the more I look at this, the more questions I have, the more I realize the depth and the nuance of this experience. We're we're blessed to have it, but it's questions that we need to ask, and I think they're questions that God intends us to ask as we sort out our role in mortality and the bumpy ride uh, that we have. So, 
Uh, our questions might sound something like this. Why would loving parents whose announced goal, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass, right? Whose announced goal is for us to return to live with them. That's what they want more than anything. Why would loving parents give Abraham a test that he might fail after already give, making covenants with him? Why now? Why not do it before and then covenant? Even though he will re-covenant with him after. Why covenant first? <coughs> if there's a chance he might fail the test. Conversely, what would happen if they already knew he would pass the test? He's, he was one of the noble and great ones. We know he'll do it. Why have him undergo such a painful experience which would, uh, would appear to our present eyes to almost be very manipulative in nature knowing that he's already going to do it? Why, why do that? What is to be gained by making somebody hurt like that when you already know who they are and what you're going to have them do? Certainly it, it is then not a test. It feels more like, more like cruelty in a sense. Next to that is that this question. Does God, do our heavenly parents really introduce pain and trial into our mortal life we're doing fine of their own volition they it's their choice they bring it they did it introduce this to either a test our obedience or b build our our character I think I've mentioned before, I remember listening in the Fast and Testimony meeting to this sweet sister with the best of hearts and the best of intentions who they had had a uh, uh, severely developmentally disabled child and she, and she talked about the things that they had learned from this child and then she said, I believe that God sent this son into our life so that I could learn patience. Now, at some level, you kind of think, well, nice sentiment that you learn patience as a result of having this boy. But at the same time, there's a little bit of self-focus there about saying the purpose of this boy coming to us was about me. And it was about my learning patience so we can build my character. I think if she could have listened to that, I think she'd be horrified because I don't think that's consciously what she meant. But unconsciously... There's some of that. So, if we look at from that standpoint, here, here's my question. Would a loving parent really do any of this? And then more pointedly, I would ask, would you as a parent do this to your kids? Running through trial... Uh, just to make sure that they're obedient or run through a trial you know they're going to pass but you're going to make them do it anyway 
Doesn't make sense, does it? And if you listen to your heart, if I believe that the narrative that we tend to tell about Abraham and Isaac doesn't take pass our own internal heart test, and we know that there's got to be something more. There's a layer here, or something, some aspect of this we don't understand, because it doesn't stand up well. Just on its on the surface, and on the basis of the thirty-second gospel doctrine answer we give as an example to explain obedience. So let's let's reload the gun here. Let's let's view this again. And I want and I want to do it and, and take a look at what, what I think really happened. And then and then by the time we get to the end, I, I want to get to what I think Abraham really learned and what the Lord really needed to have him know however that occurred and whatever happened on Moriah. So, if we look at this, we're going to say, it happened after these things that God tested Abraham. Well, the word, the, the word test there, the Hebrew word is nasah. And he's going to nasah Abraham. Well, it does also mean prove, and it also means examine. Let's take the prove f- word first. Um, Cindy and I become quite big fans of a, of a quirky little uh, Netflix show called uh, The Great British Baking Show, and some of you might have watched that as well. Uh, and from an English standpoint in their lingo, uh, if they're going to prepare dough, they're going to roll it, mix it, and then they put it in a warm place to prove it. And sometimes when they fail their baking show trials, it's because the dough was underproven. That means that the yeast got in there and didn't prove it enough, meaning didn't raise it enough, didn't, didn't grow it enough. It's underproven. It's a little flat. Or it might be overproven. It just has become too fluffy and light and everything. Proving for them meaning uh, that it, it's going to grow as a result of little bits of uh, yeast in there that are expanding and expanding it. Now, it's the same thing when we're talking about examining. And suddenly it's become bigger and we see it better. Um, I really like, there's an air, there's an Arab word that is closely related to Nasah and the Arab version of this would be to examine by smell it's close enough that I'm going to smell it and really examine it it literally is the smell test right Um, that in in looking at that I'm going to look at it very closely enough that I can I can catch any odor or smell off of this it's related to when it says that Moses saw God face to face meaning they were so close the word there means I can feel his breath on my cheek and I can he can feel my breath we are that close we're examining it closely well in that sense now we start to get a sense it happened after these things that God examined, proved, grew, smelled Abraham. If that's the case, 
then what's happening here? Again, whatever actually happened there, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna believe that I have no idea really what happened on top of Moriah. Um, in reality, during times of pain and trial, we and God can closely examine and scrutinize where we stand right at that moment of our trial in our journey back to our heavenly parents. And so we ask, what lack I yet? Think about those times when you have maybe been hurt or betrayed by, by someone. And, and we go through this natural process of not just saying, what did they do to us, but was there anything that I did to cause it? Did I do something, that, something I shouldn't have done? Uh, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Um, and it's that moment that we learn most about us. Certainly, uh, Hubie Brown talking about Abraham said, Abraham had to learn something about Abraham. Well, that closer examination is what I think is happening as he's being Nasat. He's being, he's being able to look closely at who he is and where he is at this particular time in his growth. What lack I yet. Now, from that standpoint, here's even more about what I think we don't know about Abraham and Isaac. Because I think there's a wonderful parallel here between Abraham and Job. With Job, we have this experience. If you just read the first couple of chapters of Job, you're going to see a man lose his wife, lose his kids, lose his animals, uh, get covered with scabs, and, and, and what he basically responds with is, God is great and God is good. And then his friends are going to come, the watchers. They're going to come and say, how come this happened? And he says, God is great and God is good. That's true if you read the poem of Job, and it is a poem. It's an epic poem that is found in some other uh, civilizations as well. If you just read the first few, you're just going to think that Job is like this, almost like a robot that is going through all these things, and he just automatically, through obedience, says God is great and God is good. Read the rest of Job. Job is going nuts. Job's in pain. He's hurting. He's grieving. He's lost. He's confused about the God that he worships. He's all over the place. And God has to come personally, and, and, and they talk. Because what is being revealed in in the rest of Job is a very human hurting Job who is trying to understand why he's going through what he's going through. In the very few verses of Genesis 22 that we have with Abraham, we almost get this uh, blank... I know you've got the, this, this miracle son, go sacrifice him, and Abraham says, you know, here I am, and off I go. And, and we don't have any response recorded on his part or on Isaac's part. The, the, all of that has been left out. Now, that might partly become because we, we now understand, most scholars would agree, as we've talked about before, that most of, uh, a lot of the Old Testament we think was written in Babylon by Jewish scribes 
with the documents that they had after Lehi had already left for the New World. So it's actually being written, and that means it's being framed a bit, and they're giving us a very truncated, short version that does not include any of Isaac's responses or of Abraham's responses. Doesn't record, doesn't handle either one of those. Now, what we do have in Genesis 22 is, he says, take your son, God said, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah, offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will show you. And off he goes. Now, not the, not the least of the reactions, not are we getting Abraham's reaction to all of this, we're not getting Sarah's response to all of this. And we're certainly not getting Isaac's response to this. Because we know that Isaac was probably not five or six. And I don't know what kind of sense of betrayal Isaac might have felt. But he certainly had to be a willing participant because otherwise he's not going to let a 91-year-old guy throw him on the altar, tie him down, and kill him unless he's willing to go along with it. And we don't have Isaac's response either, other than, hey, where's the sacrifice? <laughs> we forgot to bring the sheep. Well, it's, it's pretty brief. It's pretty cut down. And one day when we get that, those millennial movies, we can go back and look at a moment in time. This is a movie I want to watch. How did they really respond? What was the reaction? Now, to kind of get a, maybe a little bit more behind that, we do have, we do have the, the advantage of um, a little bit more. I don't know how much knowledge, uh, if we just have the Septuagint, uh, for the for the first generation of the church after Jesus, um, we have that. But there seems to have been more. The Dead Sea Scroll people seem to have more. Some of these stories. And here's here's an example of this. And it comes out of Hebrews 11. Whoever it was that wrote Hebrews. Hebrews 11 is going to say, by faith, Abraham when he was tested, proved, Nasad, offered up Isaac because he received the promises. In other words, these things happen because there had been promises. There had been covenants given to him. It was a direct result. Now, he's going to say, there uh, we go here, but he was ready to sacrifice his only son. Why? Here's some insight. Abraham reasoned. Somehow they got his thought process. Abraham reasoned that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. And figuratively speaking, he received him back. Now, First generation of the church and a number of Hebrew sources tended to believe that Abraham actually sacrificed Isaac and that he was brought back from the dead. 
and they saw the direct correlation with God the Father and the Son at Golgotha to Abraham and Isaac who had to be literally brought back from the dead and that Abraham's reasoning was this is still going to be my birthright son but I'm going to have to put him to death for for some reason to learn something here and that Isaac was willing then to go along with that well that's quite a lesson now if that's the case and however that occurred and whatever knowledge Abraham was given either on the way up to Moriah or on the mount or what the angel might have taught them or perhaps even God himself there is so much again here that we just don't know What we do know was that after this experience that uh, Abraham, as they were wont to do, when you have experiences, you put a name on it. That name gives it power. Uh, Think about Jacob wrestling with the angel and with God and he's going to name the place Peniel. You know, I I have to say that, you know, and and God's going to say to Jacob, we're going to name you because of the wrestle. You know, and you'll be, you'll, you'll be Israel. Okay? Well, in this case, Abraham, he's on top of Mount Moriah, but he's going to name the place because of whatever happened there. Look what he calls it. He named that place uh, Yahweh Uriah, as it is said in this day. And I'm probably slaughtering that. What does that mean? On the mound of the Lord, there is sight. I received sight on top of that mountain after the event. What? So, wow. What, what sight, what would he have known that he didn't know? As he came down Moriah, what, now, what did he now know that he didn't know before? Even after he had covenanted with God previously. That gives us a clue. If this is referring to Abraham, and it could be, there is sight. In other words, I know things that I didn't know before. If this refers to Abraham, what might he see? Well, in the, in the time that we have remaining, I think there is, there is certainly an additional sight, viewing, knowledge, vision that Abraham could have had that he didn't have previously and it's this one of the blessings that we have from the from the restoration is the book of Moses and as when we were talking uh, a couple of months ago about Enoch and we and we examine really thoroughly this one of the most amazing moments that we have in all of scripture and it happens that Enoch uh, when he has joined God in the heavens and he's watching as God is watching the, the, the effects of the flood and remember that it says the God of heaven looked upon the residue of the people those that weren't saved by the, the ark and he wept and Enoch bore record of it saying how is it that the heavens weep I'm watching God weep so much that their tears fall as rain on the mountains 
Well, uh, from that, what was the answer? How come? Well, why was God weeping? He's, and he's going to tell Enoch, Unto thy brethren I have said, and also given commandment, that they should love one another, and that they should choose me. By the way, that's just reversed, uh, as uh, Terrell and Fiona Givens have pointed out. The original commandment that God gives is love God and then love your neighbor as yourself. God is watching because these people have ceased to love one another. And for any parent, any mom especially who's watched their kids fighting, they should totally get this, right? That the most painful thing that could happen is watching their kids not love one another. And that's what's causing Enoch to then weep also. Because these people that they love don't love one another and they're causing each other pain. Behold, God says, they are without affection and they hate their own blood. That hatred will extend to God's only begotten Son and will result in His death. Oops. So, like Enoch, Abraham, who was designated the, the father of nations, as he walked back down Moriah, did he then better understand the anguish that would come to a father watching his son suffer and die? at the hands of people with no affection. That's quite a moment. Would Isaac, as, a, as he came back down Moriah, would Isaac understand the sense of betrayal, that initial confusion that might come when there's no other sacrifice available and you have to drink the bitter cup? I think for Abraham and Isaac there was vision. And in that moment, again, no matter how far, how that knowledge occurred for them, they came down clearly better understanding uh, the love of a father and a son and the anguish over a death that would have to happen. And that's pretty, that's pretty powerful. Our trials, brothers and sisters, as we close, come because mortality is filled with trials. If you walk through a graveyard or a, grape, a grapevine area, a vineyard, that's what I was looking for. If you walk through a vineyard, you're going to get some grapes on your shoes. If you come to mortality, we're going to hurt and we're going to go through trials. Those proving grounds give us a chance to understand ourselves better but they're not trials we'll fail. They are trials to teach us and grow us and change us and give us an idea where we are and what lack I yet. And they are maybe at times a chance for us to understand the great God that we worship. 
I bear you my testimony that God loves us and he weeps when we struggle and he cheers for us when we learn what we need to learn as we begin to come like become like him and I leave that with you in Jesus name amen <laughs>